from the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, October 9th. Today, some of the people who are planning to vote for President Trump and the reopening of a bakery in Beirut. With just over three weeks left until the election, most national polls show Democratic candidate Joe Biden with a significant lead over President Trump. But there are still a lot of people who are planning to vote for Trump. Some people that you might expect and others that might surprise you. And we wanted to look at who some of these Trump diehards are. Over Labor Day weekend, I really wanted to go to a Trump vote parade. It's this thing that has kind of become a cultural phenomenon, especially over the last few months, because the president can't have as many big rallies. A lot of his supporters have been kind of having rallies of their own out on waterways and lakes and gathering in their boats, covering them with Trump flags and just trying to give this visual representation of their support for the president. And I came across this one in Sandusky, Ohio, that really stood out to me because it wasn't just a boat parade. There was also going to be a barge leading the boat parade. And that barge was going to be covered with 10 cannons. And those cannons were going to be firing off. Uh, Organizers were also encouraging people to ride their motorcycles to the parade. There was going to be a historic military aircraft that was going to fly overhead. It it just seemed like so many different components. It had cannons at it. I just wanted to check this out. This is national political reporter Jenna Johnson. She wanted to talk to Trump's most loyal group of supporters, white men who do not have college degrees. My name is Sean Bickley. I live in Ohio. 54 years old, and I solve problems. I build and maintain marinas across the north coast of Ohio. We've been in business since 1959. And he's the guy who organized this whole thing. Now, he's always been a Republican. He's always been pretty conservative, but he's never been such a huge fan of a president as he is of President Trump. My love grew from him from almost zero to 110% in a quick amount of time. And just one example that kind of illustrates his admiration for the president is that he has decorated his SUV so that it kind of looks like a limo. And in the back seat, he put a cutout of President Trump's face so that when he drives around town, it looks like he's chauffeuring the president. He's given a lot of money to the president and has really tried to drum up a lot of enthusiasm for him. There's a compilation out there called the Mega Pill, and it's the top 100 or so, 125 accomplishments that he has orchestrated, signed, put into law, executive order to make this country run smoother. He's doing very, very well for himself. 
without a college degree. And he sees President Trump as a fellow businessman, someone who has had a career uh, very similar to his, even if different in scale. And, you know, what you're describing in some ways is not that surprising to me, right? Like when I think of a Make America Great Again hat or when I see them like out in the real world, I usually see them on the heads of white men. But at the same time, I think it is worth remembering that like this is such a key and solid demographic for Trump, that there is this huge swath of people that he doesn't need to worry about because a lot of white men will continue to support Trump for a long time. Yeah, well, a lot of times the support is more than just political. I mean, they love the things that he's been doing. They love the people that he's gone after. They love the changes that he's made. A lot of them have actually posted these long, long lists of things that President Trump has done that they really like. But but it's more than that. I mean, he's also a cultural leader to them. He's had to fight every bit of truth. But he puts America first. He's someone that they think understands them, someone who speaks up for them. And I mean, the support that we see for this president is just very different than we've seen for any president in recent memory. So for a very long time, a majority of white men have always sided with the Republican nominee. So it's not surprising that a majority of white men continued to support the president. But when you kind of get into who those men are, there's some interesting things there. When it comes to college-educated white men, they've actually moved towards Biden. The more education someone has, the more likely they are to vote for Biden. When it comes to white men who don't have college degrees, like many of the men that I met at this boat parade in Ohio, they're supporting Trump at rates that are much higher than we've seen for any presidential nominee in many, many years. And when President Trump looks at what he needs to do to win re-election, his strategy basically comes down to his campaign wants to find more men, mostly more white men, but also some black men and Latino men who maybe didn't vote in 2016 or weren't quite sure about him in 2016 and get them to the polls. I mean, that really is the driving strategy here for the Trump campaign. But what I'm really curious about is for these men and and particularly for white men, what do they see when they look around and see the state of the country right now? Like, how do they square where we're at right now with their sense that the U.S. really is in a better place than it was several years ago? Yeah, I mean, when you look at polling, (laughs) these are the sort of people who are most likely to say that they think the economy is going great, that they feel like the country is headed in a better direction. But, but the economy is not going great. Right. And so you look at those polling numbers and, and you try to make sense of them. And so I'm in Ohio and I'm talking to the people who are the sort of people who are behind these polling numbers. And what they're telling me is that, you know, while a lot of Americans think that the world is on fire right now, and while there is a lot of evidence To back that up, a lot of these men say things are great right now. And that's why I love that guy. Most of them have not seen a change in their income. 
with the COVID crisis. Many of them have not had anyone in their families uh, get ill. This county that I was in actually has a pretty low rate of deaths when it comes to the coronavirus. You know, and even if there are things that are not so great or haven't been going so well, there's just this feeling that things have never been better in recent years, that they feel like there's still things that need to get better. But there's something about Trump being in the White House and Trump speaking up for them that allows them to kind of look past some of these other things that are happening. Hmm. You know, we've talked about some of the voters who had voted for Trump in 2016 and have now changed their minds and and view the president in a different way. And many of them point to things that he said that are racist, to other types of incendiary remarks, or just the fact that he can sometimes be a bully or, or just mean in very public ways. Why are those things not an issue for this demographic of voters? Well, you know, it's interesting For some of these men, they kind of like some of those things about Trump. When it comes to accusations that President Trump is racist, they don't think that those are fair or true. They believe that President Trump has been an advocate for the Black community, that Democrats have been unfair in labeling Trump as a racist. Every single time that the left doesn't like a group, they just immediately call them racist. And when it comes to Trump's nastiness, a lot of these guys actually really like that. They like when Trump goes after people on Twitter. They loved watching him in the 2016 Republican primary where he just slugged and took out uh, establishment figureheads like Jeb Bush. And they just like seeing someone who's fighting. And I know that you went out to this boat parade Labor Day weekend, but do you have a sense of now that the president has been diagnosed with COVID and that there is more of a discussion around, like, is he really a responsible leader if he can't even keep himself safe from this pandemic? Is that getting through to his supporters at all? It's not. And the thing is, President Trump has not changed his stance on the coronavirus President Trump has said that this is something that they should not be afraid of. And they've watched Trump, you know, make public appearances. They're not worried about him. They think that he's going to be just fine. And his experience matches with a lot of their views on the coronavirus going into this in that it exists. (laughs) They, They do believe that it exists and that it's out there and that it is killing some people. They don't think that it's quite as deadly as experts and scientists and officials say that it is. And they're really opposed to changing their lives in any way to try to prevent the spread of this virus. I wear my mask and go in and buy what I have to buy. But I believe this virus will be almost completely over on November 4th. It feels like regardless of what happens next month, like that psychology is still going to be there. And that's something that we still have to deal with. Yes, exactly. So President Trump has really created kind of a new cultural rule book for these men. He has made clear that they have been victims of the system. But he's also given them permission to make fun of liberals or people who feel like they have also been victims. 
he is tapped into a lot of grievances that are in this country, a lot of anger that's in this country, a lot of just this feeling of being left out or left behind or misunderstood. And those feelings, no matter what happens with this next presidential election next month, those feelings aren't going to go away. Those feelings are a very real thing in our country. And there's something that we need to better understand. Jenna Johnson is a national political reporter for The Post. I was very curious about the voters that could make a difference in Florida if the election there ends up being very tight, as some polls have suggested. I'm Jose Del Real, and I'm a national political reporter with The Washington Post. I've done some reporting on Latino voters across the country and have really come to understand the extent to which these voters' political preferences really vary by region, by gender, by ethnic background, by race, by age. Nationally, Latinos by and large support Joe Biden. But as I started sort of poking around in Florida, I came to find out there's a really big evangelical Latino community in Orlando. And a lot of them were telling me they were going to vote for President Trump. So tell me more about who these voters actually are and what their values are. So I will be the first to admit that I knew very little about evangelical Latino voters when I started this reporting. I was very surprised to find that there are somewhere between six to nine million evangelical Latino Christians in the United States, about uh, three million of which are of eligible voting age. As Latinas and Latinos come of age, they're a bigger and bigger voting bloc. Reverend uh, Gabriel Salguero is an influential and well-known evangelical pastor who lives in Orlando. They're determinative in Florida, in Ohio, in like the big states, right? So you could win the popular vote, as you know, in the la- from the last election and lose the Electoral College. And they know that in these key swing states, Hispanic evangelicals can tip the balance in any direction. As I was talking to some of these voters and also to evangelical leaders, I realized that these voters don't have a clear political home. People think they know Latinos and people think they know evangelicals. And so when they say evangelicals, they say, why bother? All evangelicals vote Republican. And when they say, oh, Latinos, well, why bother reaching out to them? We all know they they lean blue or they lean Democrat. And I think that's the problem. I think there's assumptions once they hear the word evangelical and there's assumptions once they hear the word Latino. But that juxtaposition, that ensalada, if you will, of Hispanic evangelicalism, people are not quite sure. and, And that's why they ignore them. These voters don't have a sort of neat division of ideological attitudes as as we are accustomed to thinking about them in terms of left versus right. For example, they tend to not support 
abortion, but they also don't support the death penalty. And so these are uh, these are positions that typically divide liberals and conservatives, and yet they hold both these positions very often at the same time. So then for these voters, how do they decide ultimately how to vote? What a lot of them have told me is that they make their political decisions through the prism of their faith. I think that those who have voted for Trump have some really deep concerns about religious liberty in America. A lot of their political decision-making is happening in fellowship with their fellow worshipers. They also have some deep concerns about the role of faith in the public sphere. And does faith have a dominant role in the other party? Is there space for faith voters in the other party? I think there's some deep concerns about that. In many ways, churches and church communities and faith organizations end up being really powerful locations for political candidates to uh, come and ask for votes. Latino, Latina evangelicals are oftentimes here in Florida and around the country, Colorado, Ohio, the decisive vote or the determinative vote because they're one of the few faith communities that is still up for grabs and neither party can take them for granted. What I found in conversation with evangelical leaders, with evangelical voters, and also with scholars of faith in America is that these evangelical voters in Latino churches tend to be less conservative than white evangelicals, but they have to be engaged. And this is where the the deeper history of political outreach to faith communities begins to matter um, as we're trying to to understand this group of voters. About 40% of us are registered independents in When President Obama won his two elections, he won the Hispanic evangelical vote by a slim majority. When George W. Bush won his two elections, he won the Hispanic evangelical vote by a slim majority. And so they're quintessential swing voters, Hispanic evangelicals. I think it's a well-known history, the extent to which the religious right and the Republican Party has often worked in tandem to achieve shared goals, you know, going back to the 1970s and the 1980s. A lesser understood component of that history is the extent to which the Republican Party has also done a significant amount of outreach to Latino evangelical communities, which, by the way, are the fastest growing evangelical communities in the country. Going back, you know, 20 years, President George W. Bush's first and second presidential campaigns made these voters a priority. And that, according to political strategists in Florida who have been following these elections, was partially successful because of the organizing power of these evangelical Latino churches. And so what we see is, again, Outreach really ends up mattering to this community, which we know about swing voters. But in this case, it is really the Republican Party that has seen these voters as potential swing voters and has really lavished them with political attention and recognition. 
And I also wonder how much of this is the Democratic Party taking these voters for granted or basically assuming that because someone is Latino that they would care about immigration policy as their biggest priority in the election and therefore would vote democratically. And as we've seen in history, but especially now, that that is not always the case. There are plenty of Latinos who care about things other than just immigration. These voters are not only not a monolith nationally, but there are such distinctions and differences within statewide races, within counties. And so what it takes to reach these voters, I think, is a really sophisticated understanding of how intersectional their identities are, how their votes and political calculations sit at a crossroads of gender, age, ethnic background, education, etc., To say that Democrats have taken Latino voters for granted is, I think, just a little bit too reductive because you've seen Democrats starting to make huge strides in places like Arizona, in Maricopa County, where uh, these voters are starting to become a significant force. You see in California, for example, the large extent to which Latino voters favor the Democratic Party and are courted by Democrats from, you know, districts in the Central Valley that flipped in 2018 to Um, neighborhoods in Los Angeles that hold a lot of Latino uh, voters. It's really interesting hearing you describe these conversations that you had with some of these Latino voters in in Florida who who identify as evangelicals, because I think when you compare what they say with what we hear from, let's say, like white male voters who are Trump supporters, I hear a lot from them that there is this cultural sense of just loving President Trump, of of loving the way that he talks and enjoying kind of the culture around the president and and make America great again. And it seems like for these voters that you've been talking to, that it's kind of the opposite of that, is that they may not love the way that President Trump conducts himself. They may not love the way that he speaks or the ways in which he can bully people or be racist. But at the same time, they see the things that he gets done. They see his priorities in terms of the Supreme Court and abortion rights, and that they are willing to hold their nose to be able to vote in favor of those things. Well, I, you know, I certainly wouldn't want to speak for all evangelical Latino voters, but what you've described certainly uh, echoes what I've heard from these voters in Florida. And the other uh, complication here, though, is that there is so little polling of this group of voters that it's hard to say with authority or definitively which way they're breaking. I would also just add that a lot of Latinos identify as white. And so the sort of cultural cross-currents that we see with regards to race and faith and ideology and gender um, also apply to Latino voters in ways that I think sometimes get missed. Jose Del Real is a national political reporter with The Post.
And now one more thing. I went to Beirut, Lebanon after a massive explosion rocked the capital on August 4th. I'm Siobhan O'Grady. I'm a staff writer on the Foreign Desk at The Washington Post. I got there about three weeks after the explosion. There was just glass everywhere. I mean, the areas that had been basically completely vacated after the explosion because they were just totally destroyed. It was piles of rubble and piles of dirt and debris. And it was hard to actually visualize what it looked like before or to even even for people who lived there for so long to sort of try to remember what it felt like because what it was now had just become completely transformed. In the heart of one of the most affected neighborhoods in the capital, Jumezi, is a bakery called Fern Hatas. It is a bakery that technically was founded in 1920, but it has moved locations since then to where it currently resides on a very busy street that was once bustling with bars and restaurants and cafes and shops and old apartment buildings with balconies where people would sit outside and observe the very hectic nature of the street below them. And now this bakery had basically been reduced to rubble. I went down to Jamezi to meet Robert Khatas, who is 64, and he's been running his family business for decades. It sounds like it's hard to own a business in Lebanon. For years, they have had very consistent business, you know, middle-class family. Then starting last year, when a sort of political crisis started to brew and an economic crisis was paired with it, the bakery started to lose a lot of money. And when the coronavirus pandemic hit and the currency in Lebanon continued to lose its value, he had to ask some of his staff to start looking for work elsewhere, which was really hard for him because he was really loyal to his staff. But he just like so many other Lebanese, was facing such enormous economic pressure. So in many ways, this bakery is emblematic of all of these problems that Lebanon is facing between the political and economic crises and the coronavirus pandemic and then the explosion. He was saying he knew that Lebanon always has its ups and downs, but the explosion came and literally cut them. them So it must feel strange for you now that you're not coming here every day at five. What does it feel like? Sometimes I cry. Why? For what? Fern Hatas is known for its manaish, or in singular form, manouche. It is a pastry-type food that is extremely popular in Lebanon. I mean, people compare it to, like, the heart of Lebanese food and cooking. You cannot have it without having manaish. Uh, And so to really understand 
what this food means to Lebanon, I called up my colleague Nader Durdham. I was literally known as the Manoushe guy at school. So. Who worked on this article with me and who is an absolute Manaish fanatic. For starters, Manoushe is basically how you would describe any Lebanese person's breakfast. It's pretty much a round piece of bread with you put on it either thyme or cheese. You kind of wrap it in two and that's kind of how you eat it. I make sure to start my day on a good note when I have a good manushi. It's a feeling of joy and also kind of maybe a humble feeling of pride. I am proud that, you know, it really means a lot because it's really, it really represents uh, Lebanese tradition. It really represents the lifestyle here. So it does make me feel very happy and very warm <laughs> because <laughs> you eat it hot. So yeah, Robert Rattas told us, I believe he'll need maybe five years to pay back all the costs that he had to spend to fix his place. It kind of really, unfortunately, debunks this whole idea that, you know, Lebanese always come back, they always rebuild, because behind this you see so much struggle, so much pain. People who might be able to rebuild but won't be as economically stable, people who um, will never rebuild, people who leave. But hopefully, with Ratas, he is so determined, he still has so much hope. So Robert, like many Lebanese, didn't have enough money in the bank to rebuild his shop. So his kids started a GoFundMe to do the basic repairs that he needs to at least get up and running. The main concerns were that he needed to have the roof repaired, some of the wall repaired, and his oven, which is of course crucial to creating this pastry, um, was completely destroyed in the explosion. And luckily, a neighboring business actually had a sort of extra oven that they donated to him. And this was sort of symbolic, too, of the rebuilding that it's neighbors helping neighbors, it's regular people helping each other out. If all went well, he was hoping to reopen by the first week of October. The bakery in Beirut did actually reopen this week. And Nader, aka the Manusha guy at school, he went down there for the grand reopening. So my dad and I just parked not too far from uh, Ratas's bakery. And we're heading there now to, you know, get our first manusha. It actually is interesting to see just in Jemeze and in Marim Khayil, a lot of relief work, people helping, people rebuilding. But once you just go one street up, it's a completely different scenario of a place that really, unfortunately, feels abandoned. There is the clear sound of, uh, you know, public works, reconstruction. You know, usually these... Uh, Whenever you live near a construction site or anything of that kind, kind these sounds may sound, may, might be so annoying. You would start thinking, when will they be over? But here and now, it's actually quite odd. Hearing these sounds makes you feel so happy. Dad, what does it make you feel about the Lebanese people seeing them two months after still going down, still trying to fix, still trying to help as much as they can? It's normal that mm. we need to rebuild everything back yani, and better than before. Yani, but the speed of it, yeah, it shows that 
the mentality and the survival feeling and the stubbornness that they have to make it and make it better and they have to stand up again after this horrible blast. Yani it wasn't that easy, but it shows a, a big determination. Oh my God. Okay, we're seeing the bakery now. There, there are already a few people waiting for their manushe. It looks so pretty. What does it feel like to open again? I'm very happy. Very, very happy. Do you want to say something to Siobhan? Siobhan, dear Siobhan, I wait you to come here. When you come here uh, to eat something special for you. <laughs> So I just got my uh, manushe with thyme and, you know, my first reaction. I haven't reached the thyme yet, but um, the, the bread is amazing. Okay, the taste is incredible. My, this is... I, I can see why this bakery is so beloved by people. I mean, along with Ghattas' amazing personality, the sweet, sweet man that he is who just cares about his customers. The manushe is actually pretty amazing. It's really delicious. Nader Durgam is a reporter for The Post Bureau in Beirut. Siobhan O'Grady covers foreign affairs for The Post. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Renny Svernovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.